Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Dispatches. We are very fortunate to be sitting with photographer Lori Grinker today. Lori, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Daniel? I'm good. We are we are deep in the woods of Maine, and there are fresh mussels being cleaned in the other room. So if you get a little ambient noise in the background, uh, folks, that's what uh, that's what you'll know it is. Fresh foraged. Fresh foraged, yes. And uh, I did nothing. I made a couple of pictures and uh, and you were kind enough to forage some, some uh, mussels for us. So we get to dine on those in a minute. And uh, I just want to give you a little, everyone a little background here on Lori. It's hard to narrow down uh, her resume and her accomplishments, but um, she is a photographer and author and she's published and exhibited her work and has garnered numerous awards, including a few like the New York Foundation for the Arts Grant, an Ernst Haas Award, which is amazing to me, a Hasselblad Foundation Grant, Open Society Community Engagement Grant, and she's also published two books and has a third about to drop. But the first two books are A Portrait of Jewish American Women and After War, Veterans from a World in Conflict, which is a book that I remember distinctively remember seeing the first time. And when I think of you, I think of the cover image of that book. Uh, she's also done many solo and group exhibits, including most recently at the Museum of the City of New York and the Brooklyn Museum. Her work is in many private and public collections, including the ICP and also the Jewish Museum in New York City, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, among others. She's also kind enough to share her, her uh, knowledge and her skills with uh, students. She's an assistant professor of journalism and design at the New School and teaches part-time at the New York University's Arthur L. Carter Graduate, Graduate School for Journalism. And another, the last thing I'll say, again, I said this was long, she is a senior member of Contact Press Images, which for me was a really impactful agency when I was coming up as a photographer. I was watching everyone in that agency, and that is in itself quite an accomplishment. So thank you so much for taking a little time with us. Thank you for having me. And you know, Contact was co-founded by David Burnett and Robert Pledge. David, who you've recently interviewed, I think. Yes, I interviewed uh, Burnett. Uh, it's, it's been longer than I, I'm terrible with, with time and dates. So I basically am always, uh, you know, I, I think it was a lot sooner than it was, but it, it's been a while. But okay. he's, uh, I saw an image posted uh, from someone on Capitol Hill a few weeks ago, and it was referencing yet another photographer covering the January 6th hearing who was using a medium format film camera. And I responded, that's the Burnett syndrome, because he was the guy with the four, four by five and the shooting medium format when digital had really taken over in that industry, and he just stuck to it. And yeah, he's a, he's an, he's an, you know, uh, he's a Swiss army knife. Kind he's of thing. an inspiration every day. And I get to be close to him through the agency and through where we live in New York, in Newburgh. So it's, I've been very lucky to be a part of Contact. And I, living in Los Angeles for, for many years in Southern California, I lived relatively close to Alon Reininger. So when I was living in LA, I would run into Alon from time to time. And again, he, these were all names and people that I was following when I was coming up as a photographer. So Contact was, always had a special place in my, in my heart. But the first question I have for you is more of an observation, and I guess this could be a true or false question, but it's not really, which is I have a really difficult time categorizing you as a photographer because I'm just going to list a couple of things. Photojournalism, documentary work, which I find are two very, very different things, conceptual art, collage, installation, and long-form stories, and you do all of those things. And number one, is that a, in terms of a career, is that a good thing or does it actually make things more difficult because people today want to seem to categorize people very quickly? Um, well, 
people have always been categorized, and if you're working in the editorial world, whether it's documentary or journalism, even in art now, a lot of editorial editors at magazines hire you based on your style. So if you look at a lot of the Magnum photographers, sure. there's a lot of artists now doing editorial assignments. Um, but when when I started, I was painting and drawing and, and did not want to go to art school and went to a liberal arts college in Vermont and took some and fell in love with the dark room and photography and the magic of that and just wanted to take pictures on the street and and develop them you know it sure. was really about the dark room then yeah and then i transferred to parsons school of design in new york and was doing documentary fine art i took workshops with lisette modell and bernice abbott so it wasn't journalism per se but it was documentary and George Tice and some other people, but I took a, a photojournalism class. Aha. Uh -huh. And we had to find a story. We learned like technical stuff. This is sure. basically what I teach. We, you learn technical stuff in the beginning, how to use your flash, you know, if you don't know what aperture is, and, and all the. Um, yeah, all the triangle. What all am I the trying to the say? tech stuff. You the know. tech stuff, but the um, exposure triangle and all of that. You would learn that, and then you start shooting. So you do different assignments, and then you have to find a project and try to get it published by the end of the semester. Of course, now it's easy to get published because you can self-publish. Sure. But back then, it was really to, in that short time of a semester, and it wasn't even the full semester. That's hard. Photograph with film. Yeah. Process your film make your prints, have the class look at it and help you sequence. I mean, it was so much fun. And, and then try to sell it. And I found these kids in Catskill, New York, and they were boxing. Mm -hmm. And they were learning with the legendary trainer, Customato, living in this house. And one of them was a nine-year-old named Billy Ham. And he was this tiny little kid with muscles but there was also a girl. So she was even, he was exotic to me, but she was more exotic. Wow, a female boxer, young female, young female boxer. Yeah, she was a little older than the rest, but she was really training and learning and, and knew Cuss's style and tricks and formulas. And she was a Mormon and had a pet rat. A Mormon pet rat, young female boxer with custom auto in upstate New York. So that was my story. That's a pretty good lead paragraph. <laughs> yeah. Now, and, and you got it published. No. What happened was people were kind of horrified to see a girl boxing, which you know has changed a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah but yeah. the little nine-year-old kid whose visuals were a nine-year-old kid with muscles learning from Teddy Atlas mostly. Okay. Yep. Um, and cuss, but with this group of boxers that included a 14-year-old named Mike Tyson yes. and a bunch of other kids. That's called foreshadowing the, and, for this interview. People, repeat that again. So custom auto, and for anyone who knows professional boxing, these names are going to be very front and center. Custom auto, famous trainer. Teddy Atlas, another famous trainer. And the 14-year-old's name was, again... 14-year-old Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, and for those of you who don't know, former heavyweight cha boxing champion of the world, and to me, the last, the last of the iconic 
heavyweight champions where that carried weight no matter where you went in the world. It was it was absolutely monumental to hold that position, and you found him at 14, which we're going to get to later. So don't, don't um, you know, we gave him a little foreshadow, but keep, keep going. And so what happened with publishing this thing? So, well, well, the story of Billy was that he lived in a trailer. He had a little sister. He, his father worked on the greens of some golf course or something, cleaning it. And so there was, you know, this... A working class family, and he spent the weekends up at the house learning. So he, to me, was a great story. And that one I got published in a magazine called Inside Sports, which was oh, yeah. new yep. with Newsweek. Newsweek, yep. And they actually test marketed a cover of this portrait I took, and they titled it The Raging Calf. <laughs> and uh, baseball won the cover. They tested two covers. Baseball. But the story got published, and it was a lot of pages, and they hired Robert Friedman, who later became an editor at Fortune, and, you know, he wrote the story. And was this the first time you had been published? Yeah, I was a student. I was literally a college student. That's a pretty good first, you know. I mean, I guess in, in some ways it's amazing that it happened, but then in other ways it might have convinced you that this was easier than... Than you think, because getting published is never, you know, it's always tricky. It's hard, no matter who you are. Well, it, it got me into this world of boxing, which, you know, I wasn't interested in the sport of boxing, but I was fascinated by the visuals of it, the training, the choreography of it, and just the whole life of these kids in the house, in this Victorian house with Customato in his plaid bathrobe at night, sitting you know, the kids sitting around on these like velvet love seats and him doing boxing moves, showing his peekaboo style and Camille in the kitchen cooking like every night was like a Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> and um, they kept saying, follow Mike Tyson. He's going to be the next champion. And I'm like, oh, but he's, you know, he's normal looking. Yeah. Um, but then I found out that Muhammad Ali was going to this is like 1981 Muhammad Ali was going to be in Florida at the Miami Fifth Street gym coming sure. out of retirement and he was kind of hefty and sluggish and when I arrived at the gym I went down because my mother lived there so I could stay with her and I wanted to photograph Muhammad Ali so I went on my own and I got to the gym and on the door it said no women allowed oh ouch and I was really green, you know, and I was fighting, not, you know, I was arguing and trying to make my point. And then a female camera person came, TV news or something, and we argued together and we got in. Nice. So that Good was move. a big. And I did this essay on Muhammad Ali, and then that was published in South African Boxing World. Whoa, of which, of course, we all subscribe to. Right. Yeah, that's pretty common here. And then I went to Sports Illustrated. I showed those pictures. In fact, that might have been published before the kid, but I can't remember. The kid, I, I actually just found the tear sheets. But anyway. Um, I'm going to come back to boxing. Okay. Because you've got quite a history. Because you spent, was it nine years photographing Mike yes. after that? So, okay, we're going we're gonna to touch on that a little bit later, but I want to back up just a tiny bit. So you started with illustration and painting. And number one, how did that influence your photography? And number two, when you when photography became something that you realized was going to be your life, 
did you have a vision of the photographer that you thought you were going to be? Because I certainly did and then realized very quickly that I was never going to be that person. And I'm curious if you had an idea, but how did the illustration and the painting influence the photography, if at all? I think the way the painting and the idea of illustration, I don't think I was very good at it, but uh, influenced me was with composition and just natural creativity, you know, and even if, like I remember I was once working in Bangladesh and this young man was assisting me and he said, do you think composition's important and in journalism? And I was like, absolutely, and every line of your viewfinder, every inch of that frame has to be well thought out. And for some reason, I was actually better at extracting the visuals in front of me into that little frame than I was with sitting in front of a canvas and drawing something out. I could never quite get everything in. So in that way, I was much, much better as a photographer. And then when you, you know, I went to photo, I went to uh, photojournalism school and my, yeah, I became a photographer because I saw Larry Burroughs work from Vietnam and I thought that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a war photographer. And then while going to school in Austin, I got shot at doing this project and I was, and I didn't, there was like a 30 second period where I have no memory of what I did. I just remember sort of coming to down behind the front of a car with a mom and her kids while the rounds were pinging off of the car and I was like not shooting pictures. And, I, thought, and I, I was looking at this woman down behind the car with her kids. And in my head, I was like, that looks like a really good image. But there, it never once occurred to me because I was just cowering behind the car. And then the police never showed up. And this was at a Little League baseball game. There were people all over the place. And it was fully automatic weapons. And, and, no, and the police never came. And I was like, how can that possibly happen? You know, this was a huge thing. And it was so common that, and I said, I don't want to be a photojournalist. I want to be a documentary photographer because I'm curious in the why, why this is happening. And it's like a broader story to me than the actual like frontline stuff. So did you, was there a vision that you had or another photographer that you, you know, a hero or a mentor that you said, I'm going to be that person? Well, there were photographers. I started collecting photography books very early on. Write that down, people. <laughs> And one that I did not buy because I was a poor college student was Larry Clark's Tulsa oh, for yeah. like $32. You didn't buy it? I did not because it was too expensive. That's my only book, photo book regret. I didn't buy Telex Iran. Oh, I did. I didn't. I put it back and I bought Abbas's Mexico book because uh, Telex Iran freaked me out. I love that book. So do I. I have it now, but I blew it and... Um, and then I met Gilles years later, and that was a really wonderful moment. But here's some photographers who influenced me very early on, and I think it's a, 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 an unusual array. Uh, Wynne Bullock. Okay, yeah. Um, w. Eugene Smith. Oh, the best. And Minamata was one of my first books as well. To me, he's the bar. Yes. Yeah. But Wynne Bullock was like zone system and somewhat set up things and yep. so they were the opposites yeah and both of those are the two that come to mind first and gene smith was just fanatical about working and you know apparently was not maybe the nicest guy in the world and maybe potentially abandoned his family at one point or another but just the amount of you know the famous story of 
being hired to make 10 pictures of, of Pittsburgh and delivering 10,000 prints and then saying, I'm not, I'm not done. I need more time. Yeah. That's, that's pretty rare. But when I got Minamata, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I started the project after war. Mm. Kind of, I mean, not like right away, but I think those are connected. It planted the seed. And the boxing was really about how these kids' lives were being turned around because of the discipline of boxing. Mm-hmm. And I also came from like a messy background, you know, a privileged one, but a messy one. And I needed to get out of there. So doing stories about other people was an honor and learning about other people and cultures once I started traveling um, was, you know, the best career I could ever dream of. It's pretty fantastic. And wh- what year was, was the first, let's say, so you, you got your college assignment published and then you got your second story on Ali published in the South Africa publication. But what was the first year that you were like, this, I'm here. Like, I'm, I'm a full-time working professional photographer. The, the Billy Ham boxing club that included Mike Tyson and the girl, Nadia, uh, were like 1981. And then... I kept going up there, but I think it wasn't consistent. I, I'm, and then through a friend of mine who was studying uh, writing, I had this idea that I should find writers and work on projects together and try to sell them. Write that down as well, everyone. Although some magazines don't like that because mm-hmm. they want to hire their own. They, they have writers or they have photographers, but if you have a finished package, sure. They, um, anyway, so he introduced me to this writer named Diana Bletter, and she and I both grew up on Long Island in different towns, and we're both Jewish, and she had a real connection to her Judaism, and I had a real disconnection. Okay. And I didn't think I wanted to do something on that, but somehow she told me about the mikvah ritual, and she was interested in feminist interpretations of traditional rituals. Interesting. And the mikvah scene, which is the monthly ritual bath after your menses. And um, so I got to photograph one. And then we just started this project. And that was a six-year project that wow. got published in 1989. 60 photographs and interviews that she did and about women around the United States and how they identify as Jews from lesbians to African-Americans to a Southern woman to the more stereotypical. And so, so six years on the, on the, this Judaism project, nine years on Mike Tyson. How many, what about after war? 15. 15 years. So just for the audience out there, I get a lot of questions about long-term projects. I did a couple of YouTube films about how to do a long-term project, doing research, finding topics, all of that stuff. But when I was coming through photo school, which was 90, 91, 92, the bar at the time for, in my mind, for doing a, a quote, long-term project was, and for whatever reason this person represented it, was Salgado. Salgado would spend 10 years, and he would do, he would do workers. He would do, you know, those. And I was like, you got to, you know, putting 10 years in was not uncommon. 
today, obviously, we're in a very different world where, you know, I went to a gallery opening where the, the, or the photographer, had, the artist statement on the wall said, this is a long-term project. I worked an entire weekend on making these images. And so we're, we've come that far. So it had to be difficult to sort of sustain this at times to get, you know, spending. That is a lot of time and a lot of years to do that. And I think that's a, a challenge that I just want the audience to understand that this is the kind of dedication and time it takes to do this kind of work. Well, the funny thing is when I was trying to be an editorial photographer, I was shooting Mike Tyson and I was doing the Jewish Women Project and Mike, they were both black and white, but then I actually started getting hired by all these magazines to do Mike Tyson and I had to start shooting color. Um, but I had color, black and white, technically, some with flash, some without, you know, everything you need to know how to take pictures in all kinds of situations. And one editor at Esquire, when I went to show my portfolio, said, if we ever need Jewish women or boxers, we'll call you. <laughs> so talk about getting typecast. Oh, my God. That is um, surprising and yet also not, not surprising. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, a – I don't even know how I would describe this. It's not really – it's not a technical question. But I, for, for me, there's about three main ingredients – to photography. And no matter what I'm doing and what the story is, those three things are basically the same. They're always there. That's the hierarchy of what I'm looking for, which is light, timing, and composition in, in that order. When you arrived in Miami and you go to that gym and you're arguing with the female camera, camera person and you guys get in to the gym with Muhammad Ali, logistically, whether it's that gym or I assigned you to go photograph a lobster processing facility 10 miles from here, What's going through your, what are, what, are, what are your ingredients that you are looking for when you start, like the assignment starts, boom, you're on, I'm here to make pictures. What are you looking for? Well, I think if I was given an assignment with a little bit of lead time, I would, if I could go to the place and see what direction the light was coming from, if there are windows, if it's color, of course, what type of light back then, what filters I might need or what film I want to use, you know, because do I want Kodachrome or Fuji or do I want, you know, all, all those sure. variables. Now, of course, yeah, it's like auto white balance and you're okay. <laughs> but and black and white, um, you know, with the Ali stuff, I'd say I didn't really know what I was doing and. There are definitely some images that are difficult to print because, like, he's from the back, and there's this huge window to his left, and then there's a mirror to the right, and the window's in it. And I, and I instinctually try to frame around the window, but sometimes you can't have a border on that edge of the viewfinder with the window, so you know that's going to blow out a little bit. But, you know, now I would know more how to do my exposure for that. Sure. And I probably had a light meter then, but... You know, I was probably very nervous. And so I was just responding to the stimuli and the visuals of it. And he went into the ring for a while, and he was very fast moving around, and I was just trying to follow it around. And It's not easy. Right. But it's, that's what's so fantastic about it, that kind of challenge. And where do you place your body? And do you lie on the ground? And do you lie on your back? And do you squat down? Or do you stand up on something? You really, you know, that's so important. There's also something, um, sometimes when, if I, and, and the projects that I do are all people-based. I, I don't shoot landscapes or still life and that kind of thing. 
And oftentimes when I'm in the middle of something like that, let's say that you're in the gym and you're, you're, you were like, that's Muhammad Ali and I'm here to make pictures of them. But there's the peripheral people and there's the peripheral sort of conversation that you often have to have. And I find myself literally in a conversation with someone, but I'm not really there. I'm actually in the other world, which is still my brain as the photographer person. And so do you ever find yourself that you, you know, when you're in the field working on a project, you have to sort of be multiple people at the same time because the peripheral people may have no understanding of what it is you're actually trying to do. And so your, your part of your brain has to remain on task while you're juggling all these other things. Is that common for you or am I hallucinating? Well, I think in some situations, and it could be that you're in some village in Africa or, you know, you have your main subjects who know what you're doing and then there's these peripheral people, but they start ending up in the pictures. If it's a news event or like Ali where, you know, certain people are allowed in and, and the people there know it's a big thing, so they there's no problem. If it's... Um, you know, some village and people are really curious and they start coming up to you and you try to plan things when the light is good, you have to be very diplomatic and you have to talk to them or just try to really get there ahead of time so you can prepare. But it's, I think that if you're not good at connecting with people and reading people, you're not in the right business of documentary photography you know because yeah. it's it, sometimes it's just so quick sometimes and you know if you're on the street shooting and people don't like it you you trust your instincts when I was doing after war I did this um I think I was actually on assignment for life and I think that's something we should talk about about how you support these projects sure um and these veterans were in a VA hospital and part of their PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder um, therapy was to go to the wall, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington, DC. They had to get on the bus and go. And for some of them, this was really traumatic. They didn't have to get off the bus, but they had to go. Okay. So I was on the bus with these guys and a helicopter flew overhead. It was probably a weather helicopter. And it spooked one of these guys because it- Sure gave Flash, him flashbacks yeah. to Vietnam and he started crying and he looked at me when I lifted my camera and they all knew what I was doing. The ones that didn't want to be photographed were very clear with me from the start and most of them were okay with it. But he looked at me and I was like, okay, yeah, you know, back off. Yep. And I didn't take the pictures. And then later he's like, why did you stop taking pictures? I'm like, I thought you didn't want it. He said, well, just at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, sometimes you want to, not be too cautious and I think people would let you know this is not the right time yeah I think that's um you have to like you said I think your point was spot on you have to be able to read a scene and you walk into a scene and you can often tell very quickly whether or not it's okay whether or not you can point at your camera without saying a word and have permission or not say anything and know you have permission and then at other times you just know absolutely not I'm going to get like punched in the neck if I try to try to do this and to me, that's the, that's the fascinating part of doing people-based work is that, one, it's exponentially more difficult in my mind. It's also more time-consuming because you do need the time and access with people. And I think today, it feels like to me, it's more difficult to do today because there's more people with cameras, but also there's an assumption that the work will instantly be seen worldwide. I get that quite a lot. You know, oh, you're going to put this online right now and get rich off of me. 
And I'm like, well, you know, I'm already, <laughs> I will not see a penny. And here, I don't know if you've ever run into this, but um, I was down on the border and I got stopped by the border patrol and they said, you know, what are you doing here? And um, I tell them and the guy's like, um, he said, who are you working for? And I said, myself, I'm just doing a long-term project. And he goes, do you work for Newsweek? And I said, no, but if I did, would it make a difference? And he goes, he goes, no, I don't like Newsweek. And he goes, but wait a minute, you're out here. He said, who's paying you to be here? And I said, nobody, I'm losing money to, to be here. And he said, that doesn't make any sense to me. You have to leave like that. That was worse than saying I was working for Newsweek. So it's a bizarre thing. Have you ever encountered that where, where um, you know, people assume that you're, you know, somehow getting wildly wealthy off the fact that you're making these picture stories? I don't think I've ever had somebody think I'm going to get wildly wealthy, except maybe one of Mike Tyson's wives who came in much later and not realizing that I've been here since before yeah. he was yeah. known. Um, but I, I, I was doing a project with support from the Open Society Foundations on Iraqi refugees, and I was in Amman, Jordan. I was shooting video and stills, and I was shooting medium format film and digital and video and doing audio oh. with everything hanging around me. Piece of cake. And because it was a multimedia piece, and I went back again, and I needed certain permissions because there were problems of some Iraqi refugees' being, faces being shown on. It could have been a refugee site, or not my pictures, but people were getting, you know, their families were getting hurt or murdered sure. or kidnapped. So they had to be very careful what they could show or not show, and I wanted to make sure I had releases. And this one woman was like, you can't put me on the Internet. You know, that's like pornography or something. And these other people were just very happy to sure. be in it, even though I had explained all this to all of them beforehand. But what I did do since they were struggling and you know I would never pay for pictures but I would bring them food and you know and and these were Arabic people Arabic men have a certain culture and to have a female want to buy you lunch or something it's like they don't want that so I had to find another way to give them something you okay, know it's sure. like bring them food or when I had an exhibition I sold some prints I gave them a percentage of the money. Okay. This is much later. But I think that's, you know, a way to give back if you are making money. Sure. And I think that there are so many groups of people who really understand the need for having their story told and there are other ones who who don't. Who don't. Yeah. So it's and and another thing about who you're working for and access. When I was in those early days in the 80s, I was interning at the Village Voice in New York City, and I was freelancing for the New York Times. So that was how I was making some money. I mean, the Voice paid a little if you did an assignment, but first you started filing and you were in the darkroom. But when I would go to places and have my press card from the Village Voice, they would like stick me in the back. And when I had my press card from the Times, they would put me in the best spot. Sure. So. Oh yeah, those press. Each press pass was uh, was very different. 
um, I, ha I did uh, a New York Post thing once, and that was a sort of middle, middle ground, I would say, where people were like, mm, I don't know. Speaking of getting paid, and you mentioned this before, these long-term projects, it's not, uh, it's not magic. Someone doesn't come out of the sky with an unlimited bag of money and say, take whatever time you want. You, you have to fight and scrape and scrap along the way to make enough to finance these oftentimes because the days of the you know 18 month assignment from some editorial outlet is are are gone uh a friend friend not someone i know super well but was telling me about an assignment um, it was it was six countries in 18 days with a shot list you know and i was like that doesn't even sound fun you know really so we're, we're kind of at that point um how did you you know put these things together over that amount of time so Sometimes it was specific research on areas that I wanted to cover with afterwards an example. So if it was soldiers going through rehab, physical, let's say, I would try to find a story somewhere or certain wars I wanted to cover. So I would do my research. I'd find, a, all right, here's an example, um, women in Eritrea who helped win the war, 40% of the fighters were women. They had their babies on the front line. They had little creches set up. And I wanted to do a story on them, and I sold it to Ms. Magazine. Okay. So that was one way where I could sell a story and use it for my book. Other ways was to sublet my apartment, base myself in the Middle East or West Africa or Southeast Asia, and try to work on my veteran stories and get assignments from magazines while I was there through contact press images. I was going to say, so contact, let's say that you the Eritrea story, you do that story for Miss Magazine, and then you get the images for your book, and then is contact licensing those as well? Do those images go into the agency, and then the agency um, basically licenses and resells those after a, maybe an embargo period or something like that? Some of the magazines back then had embargoes. I don't know what it's like now, but... Um, and then so contact was resales. Yes. Okay. And they have had have agents around the world. So you would then put the if it was published, you take the published piece and you take a set of pictures and send it to them, slides, etc., duplicates. Yep. Now of course you just email it. Dupes. Or you put it on Photo Shelter or on whomever you use. Yeah. And yeah, and try to resell it. Um it, it's interesting cuz Jeffrey Smith at Contact Press Images is working on the editorial aspect of my Mike Tyson book. Okay. And he was trying to get first serial rights out. And somebody said, nobody does first serial rights anymore. But he did sell it. <laughs> and, you know, God bless him. He's like out there every day trying to just do it the old-fashioned way and the new-fashioned way. But Yeah, I think it's a, it's a balance. I mean, I think now there's so many... There's so many things that have changed, and it feels a little bit like the Wild West, but it's, but it's also kind of cool. There's a lot, of, a lot more. I think, I mean, when I started, everyone was th that was in sort of control of my, my life was in New York City. You know, it was editors and agents, whatever, in New York City, and I was living in, you know, Arizona and Southern California. And now it kind of feels like you can create your own island, and you can invite on the people that you want on that island, and then you can still engage with the outside world, so you're not totally isolated. And it's really fun, you know, to, to do that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I think, can I just interrupt? Yeah. One very important thing now is to base your, since you can be based anywhere, 
So if you want to be a freelancer, base yourself in a place that has, that everybody's not in, in a place that maybe has a good airport or access, like, you know, the story now is Kentucky and the floods. Yep. Base yourself in this region and do stories there. People are getting, the people who live in those places or in Idaho, they're getting all these wildlife stories. So you can become established in that place and you get all these assignments and going to these places, if you want to be a newspaper photographer or something, there's still so many publications around the country that hire photographers. Yep. And I think it's a great way to start. And I also think, too, the cost of living in the major cities is really high. So I know that when I got out of school, I ended up in Phoenix, and there weren't a lot of freelance photographers in Phoenix. So I got an internship at a paper. I was supposed to be there for three months. I stayed for a year and a half, and then I started freelancing in Phoenix, and I just immediately started getting work because there wasn't any, it wasn't like I was good. I think editors looked at me and said, you, you, you're fairly normal. Your pictures are sharp. And it's, you, you can do this. And so just immediately, then when I moved to Southern California, it just stopped completely because there were so many photographers there. So I think that's a great, great point you made. Let's talk a little bit about installation and what an install, you know, you, your work can run in an editorial outlet. You can do a book, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Installations are a whole separate thing. And it's a very, very different experience for the viewer. But how do you view installations in terms of what they do for you as an artist? I can give three examples, I think. Um, another project of mine is called Dear Grinkers, and it has to do with the diaspora of the Grinker family, and it's all done with medium format film, and I do all the interviews for that. I also shoot video. But I have started it in 2002, going back to Lithuania, worked on it for several years and I have a cousin who's a cultural anthropologist who runs the anthropology department at GW and his grandfather's one who started finding all the Grinkers. Anyway, so we put something together and I got an exhibition at the Jewish Community Center of Manhattan, but it's a, a really great place. But the way we set it up was with maps and interviews and different sections of the place where these grinkers ended up or started from so it was a way to walk through this and get this history so it wasn't just about my pictures and his text so it was an exhibition but it really was more interactive and we had a board with a map where people who came in could put pins from where their family started and where their family went to. Oh, nice. That was really cool. People really liked that a lot. So interactive, but also more immersive than, yes. than probably any other way of delivering your work. You know, For that, yeah. Yeah. And then another one in, in the city of Newburgh, New York, where I have a house, I um, would walk my dog, and Newburgh is... is a city in transition and it's one of the rougher cities in the country and there's a lot of blight it's been just disregarded for so long by you know bad politics and all this kind of stuff and and um, anyway so my dog walks me wherever she wants to go and she doesn't know anything and most people are really nice and I've met people from all walks of life and so I got this idea to do this project because, you know, it's all about how we perceive people and how we think they perceive us. But once you start talking, most people are really nice. Yes. And I got a, um, what's it called? The pop-up 
like light box, mm-hmm. like a tent. Yeah. It was big. I got a used one, so it was bigger than I wanted. <laughs> it was like seven feet high and or six feet wide. And I started this portrait series where I just took all these people, some who I'd already met and some who I didn't know, some who I met on the street, and I did this series of portraits. And then, and I did really quick interviews and I did this outdoor installation. So everything was printed on vinyl and we built these like PVC pipe frames and, and they were outside during this art fair. And then I had the text separately on like laminated pieces and you didn't know who was speaking. So you walk around with the text in your hand and you look at all the pictures of these people and you're trying to find out whose story is whom because it's all about how we um, judge people and, and our prejudices and our inherent biases. And I never reveal who's who. People from the community, especially kids, you know, some of them like were relatives, but they're like, wait, this must be this person, this must be that person. And, and it was really eye-opening for me because I had all these impressions, but I couldn't perceive doing that any other way and people loved walking through it and it was like a maze almost and well i think this the fact that someone at that show like what you just mentioned they stopped and said wait a minute wait a minute this is from that person and this is from that person you're winning if, if you can get that kind of attention for your projects and i and i think the installation and an immersive installation there isn't anything else quite like it they're typically expensive to put together they're labor intensive I remember living in Los Angeles, the World Press Photo Exhibition was at the Holocaust Museum every year. And then one year, they put it in the mall in Santa Monica. And I remember because Corinne Dufka had mm-hmm. these images, really graphic stuff from West Africa, and there was a warning. There was no warnings with that. But then there was a one picture that had some like nudity or something, and there was a giant warning sign, which I thought hilarious and you know so hypocritical in so many ways. But to watch the general population engage with World Press Photo was fantastic. It was just, it just blew my mind to go in there and see the, the crowds of people pointing and watching. And I thought, this is fantastic. Because this is where this work in particular really needs to be to, my, get, the, to get the best impact. My very favorite one is the most recent one. Well, maybe the portrait series was after. But anyway, in 2017. In 2013, I went back to school to get a master's in visual arts because I wanted to push the documentary practice and start to experiment with other things, as you said, collage and installation and get back to a little drawing and painting, which is slower than the rest. (laughs) And um, I was encouraged to not work on the family project then, but to think about some other things. And I had these journals, My, my brother, Mark, passed away from, died of AIDS in 1996, and he was diagnosed in 1985. And he, I was his caregiver, as was my mother. We'd switch off every three weeks. He lived in Chicago. He was a law professor then. And then he lost his eyesight. He stopped working. So towards the end of his, I wasn't photographing him because he didn't want to be remembered that way. He let me do a little bit of photography. but I started recording, and then at, towards the end of his life, he had dementia, but he was really charming. So I wrote down, he didn't talk much, but everything he said was like magical realism, and I just wrote it all down. 
And so during graduate school, I started making portraits of him through objects of his and doing these collages based on, he wrote this play that had to do with AIDS and the crisis. And he was a really good writer. So I used parts of the play and I had people read parts of it mm -hmm. and did audio of that. And that was my first installation. I made these little assemblages with pictures, some from other projects I had done and some of his words. And, and you know, I don't think it was great, but it was interesting. Then the next one I did had more video from video I'd shot of him and um, animated my animated handwriting and my voice that became this piece that was like me asking him questions and his answers from my diary were my handwriting animated, which I just found a handwriting app and <laughs> animated it. It wasn't very complicated. And then pictures of his writing that I did in particular light and, and um, the Museum of the City of New York was doing this exhibition called AIDS at Home, Art and Everyday Activism. So it was about this history of treating people with AIDS and caregiving in New York City at that time. And when this curator found out about my work through one of my mentors at graduate school who was who you know does everything about HIV AIDS and and he was helping him uh, and he was doing a film for the exhibit he created the whole exhibit surrounded by my work so he created a room in the middle of the floor where the show was and I had been focusing on this beautiful light that was coming through my dining room window at this tiny little house in Ridgewood Queens on the border of Bushwick and the light would come in and I loved that light and I just photographed everything with that light and then I photographed the shadow and light of the tree moving. So that became like a, on a, on a, um, like sheer thing or, or opaque thing, mm -hmm. just, you saw just that moving. And then you walk around the bend and you saw some of my big pictures. I did these huge four by fives of just writings, books, lines, some of his, highlighted things from books that were helping him prepare for his death and then you walk in the room and you see this big screen and you hear my voice and you can kind of hear my voice throughout the whole place but it's like asking him these questions and then you just see the answer so it like drew people in and then I had artifacts of his that they put in cases so that was the best installation and when I went I took my students there and I was talking to some guards one day and, and I told them what I was doing because they asked about, you know, who are these kids and, and they were telling me how this project moved them and how they learned so much and, and that was one of the most meaningful things and I'm, I'm still working on it. I'm hoping to do more with it. Yeah, and what is, uh, you know, time frame, just a, a quick answer, but what's the, what kind of time did it take to put that together? That was short because that really? was during graduate school, so that was like a year. A but year. I mean, yeah, it's but I think going still... through archive. It's working with an archive. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, and it. So. It's still, you know, a year. I yeah, it wasn't I, a weekend. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what uh, the point I want to emphasize with people that is it, it, it def, you know, a quote unquote short installation process is a year. So um, let's talk. There's two more things I want to talk about, and they're related books. Um, 
I, I say this all the time, but when I started my YouTube channel, I made some, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about books and print and, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be a zine, can be a magazine, just, and, and even postcards, putting your work into print, very educational for any photographer, I think. And this guy wrote me and I love YouTube comments and the, and this wasn't a troll comment, but I do love troll comments as well. But the, this the guy, the guy said, you're a total idiot. You know, this is the digital age, like wake up. No one cares about print. And I said, and I wrote back and said, in the consumer world, in the prosumer photography world, that might be closer to being accurate. We're not, you know, in the consumer photography world, people are Instagram and, you know, they're putting it online. But print is still highly, highly, highly revered at the high levels of photography. What is it about a book that, in your mind, makes it so important, even in 2022? The tactileness of it, the ability to hold something in your hand and go through it and stop on a page or go back to move with it to another place without having to have electronics. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like clothing, you know, you need books. <laughs> we can't live. Well, I suppose you can live without clothing somewhere, but yeah, um, I think so. It's, it's in Brazil somewhere. I think, <laughs> um, I do some mentoring through this organization that found me and this girl became my student and I'll try to make it quick, but she wanted to do this project. And her goal was to make a book. And in the end, she made a Blurb book. Oh, and... ooh, that was a plug. It was a plug. <laughs> Unexpected. So I introduced her to Blurb, and she ended up with this book. And it was very expensive, but she had some money, her family, and they made one for all the different families members. It, they were whole, The family came back from a background of Holocaust survivors. Okay. So it was so important to give that out. I mean, yeah, you could put it online, and you could make a PDF and put it online, but it's complete a completely different beast i find that books are one there's a permanence that i love so back in the day if you go back to the 80s and probably even into the 90s one of the big uh outlets for photo book publishers was the library system in america you know libraries would would agree to purchase you know x amount of copies and that was a pretty significant portion of the run and I always loved that because you'd go to the, I found Peter Beard in the Phoenix Public Library. I sent the Adventures and Misadventures of Peter Beard. I looked at that book. I said, I'd never seen who this guy was. And he just blew my mind. And I went down that rabbit hole. And so I love the permanence of the book. And I love the fact that uh, it's confrontational because you can't really do anything else while you're consuming the book. And I think in our world that is so rare today where we, we thrive on and love to brag about our multitasking skills, but the book has become almost confrontational. I think, you know, it becomes yours. It becomes, when you fall in love with a book, it's just something you can travel through by opening the pages anytime you want. Mm -hmm. It's not like a movie where you have to turn something on. As I said, it's, you know, you just get to have it. And, and um, I, I have a funny story. There's this gentleman who um, was helping me look at some of the stereo equipment I have that was my brother's, my mother's, mine, and, and I want to try to use it. And he came over and he started, and he's a real audiophile. And, and he has all his CDs and all his LPs. And I have all these LPs, and I thought I could start listening to them. He says, oh, I don't listen to LPs. I, you know, digital is better in my opinion. And he kept saying that. And he said, but I make bookshelves for my LPs because I want to pull them out. I want to see the liner notes. I oh, want to yeah. see. So it's kind of like that. It's like, 
they're they're objects. Yeah, it's 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 very similar. My brother has a big LP collection, and it's when he's six years older than I was, and my brother's life is very much about music. And as a kid, I remember him getting new albums and how much time we spent with the inserts and the the artwork inside and the photography and that was probably some of the now that I think about I never really thought about this until this exact moment but that was probably the first time that my introduction to art and photography was through my brother's uh, albums and I think you know CDs came along great wonderful in the car but it's it's different listening to something on an mp3 player as opposed to listening to to an uncompressed file or an LP is a completely different thing but I just want to say, if the music sound is still good with digital, yeah. you still, they don't spend time with liner notes Mm-mm. and seeing who produced it. So that's a big part of the experience. And having a book in hand, you get to, there's a lot that goes into a book. What paper do you use? What's the cover? What's the coating on the cover? Are there foldouts, which my book has? gatefolds that you open up yep. and are there loose images some people put so there's a the whole design aspect of it it's an it's like a little installation it's a whole experience in itself that's a great uh, explanation as a book is a little installation another example for me is the kindle i have a I have a kindle when i travel uh but one of the things that drives me crazy is when you start a book it jumps past the cover art and 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 i'm like wait a second and i always have to back up and you don't get that sense of of art, of, of a, a team putting it together, whether it's the acquisitions editor and the designer and the editor, the sequencer, or the, the artists themselves. It is a real team. And, um, and when you open the crack, you know, you open a book and look at the people involved in the process of making it, it's a pretty special, special thing. So yes, we're, I'm, we're, I think we're both jaded because we're book people. But speaking of books, and this is the last thing that we're going to talk about, but you are about to drop a new book, which will be your third, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, tell us a little bit about this one, when it's coming, who produced it, and tell us a little bit, little bit about it. So back to Mike Tyson, the 14-year-old. Uh, I followed him for nine years. I have a huge body of work, some very intimate pictures, you know, like of his teeth, because we were sitting next to each other on the plane, and I just stuck my camera on his mouth, and that's the whole picture. Or you know, his pigeons or certain moments. And you get to see a really different side of Mike or different sides of Mike. And you really get to see the trajectory of his starting out so young and becoming world champion. And it's a book that I wanted to put together for a long time. And it came to be with powerhouse books, ironically, through Mike Tyson's agent, Vigliano. And, but that's a long story. And it got postponed over many years for various reasons from the publisher's side. Then I was happy to postpone it because I was in graduate school. So, you know, I think my contract started in 2014, and here we are, 2022, and it's coming out on September 6th. <laughs> and the, I worked with Giorgio Badavale, who was the, is a great book designer and who published After War and designed it. Okay. I wanted him to design this. And we did this very abstract cover, which is interesting. And when Daniel Power, the head of the owner of Powerhouse Books, who published the book, uh, saw that cover, he's like, this is too artsy. This isn't a Mike Tyson cover. And we worked with this designer he was working with, and we completely changed the cover, which I love both, but this one is the right cover. 
And that was really interesting because we were, it was so many years and we were kind of left on our own to design it. And one day I went back to the editors several years ago and he's like, not Daniel, but somebody else. He's like, your contract's for like 100 pages. This is 260 pages. Oops. <laughs> so we had to cut it down, but they gave me more pages. Now, at any point in, any point in time, when you realized, you know, nine years in and probably multiple years went by and you're like, look, this is a good body of work. He's a historical figure now. He's part of American culture and sport history. I want to do a book on this. Was there any point in time did you, that you said, I'm going to design this myself? No, there was never a time when I thought I was going to design this myself because I don't think I'm good at that. And I love working with designers and I have ideas. I did a zine and I worked with a designer, but I really had my ideas. And I actually made out of the portrait series I mentioned, I did these cards. So they look like tarot cards. So there's the prints and the text, they're separate and they come in a little belly wrap with a little vel Velcro. So it's like kind of like a book. Yeah. Um, and that I designed. But I think there are such great book designers out there. And, you know, I knew I wanted gatefolds, but there are technical aspects of it as well as the creative aspects. And uh, Your answer was exactly what I thought you would say because I, I think one of the – there's a lot of, you know, I work for a company that we speak – we talk a lot about self-publishing. And I love to tell people self-publishing doesn't mean you do everything by yourself. And I think – most of the great photography books I have, I don't know of any of those that were designed by the photographer. They were designed by a full-time publication designer. And then also some people bring in editors. They bring in another person that may help with the sequence alone. I mean, it's a, it really is a complete uh, team experience, which is one of the reasons why they're expensive to do. And they're also time consuming, you know, most the publishing. So let's say um, I know that it was a long time. Your contract was for 2014. But what was from, would you say, the, the real crunch time for the book? Was that a year? Was it a year and a half, approximately? I'd, I'd say the past year was really crunch time. I mean, we went to press in, on June 1st of 2022. Okay. And, yeah, maybe a year and a half is even. Okay. And is it all black and white? Is there black and white color? Is it mixed. a mix? It's, it's a mix. mixed, yes. Yeah. Yeah, which is hard when you're trying to balance five color and duotone and... Sure. Yeah. And just how hard was that editing process of editing black and whites and color? Is it thematic or is it is it all just woven together? It's actually kind of thematic in that it, it like it's not chronological. So it's thematic in certain things, like the beginning is when he's young and in the Catskills. But then you go to parts that are like in in the house in the Catskills or training. Okay. Then you go to, you know, pigeons or turning pro. And so things can go back and forth in time. And then there's like the marriage with Robin Givens. And yeah, so it goes back and forth a little bit, which I like. I didn't want it to be um, chronological. Sure. And the very last picture is actually in 2012 even though the book ends around 90, 91. And 2012, he was on 
Broadway doing this show with Spike Lee, which they used a ton of my pictures, and then Rolling Stone hired me to go photograph him, so he's in his dressing room, so that's the last page of the book. And what was that like, um, revisiting him in 2012? Well, it's, it's perfect for the ending of this interview. Uh, his wife had called me and said, Spike Lee wants to do the show, and they don't have much money, can you give them a good deal on pictures, and you know, contact and I are, you know, I'm like, well, sure, but then you have to do X for me. I want to do a book. I want Mike to write something. And and she's like, we can introduce you to our agent. And so I go to the theater. Mike sees me. He's very excited. We have a really nice hug. And then later we're talking and I mentioned the book, and he said, well, you have to talk to my wife. And I said, well, I already did. And he said, well, that's the first mistake you made. <laughs> and he was joking. Yeah. And so then it came to be, he didn't write the intro, but um, it it was great to see him again, and I think he'll be very happy with the book. I'm looking forward to seeing it, and we talked about this uh, yesterday, but I was a big boxing fan, and I followed, you know, when Mike came on the scene, and how different he was from anybody else I'd seen, and very anxious to see what you've put together. How can people find this book? And let, let's repeat the date that this book launches and where they can find it. The book launches on September 6, 2022. And there's an exhibition at Clamp Art in New York City on November 3rd. There'll be books there. You could pre-order on Amazon and they give you the discount. And it'll be at Powerhouse Books. They have three bookstores in New York City. And I'm sure... Other bookstores, Simon & Schuster's the distributor. Um, but yeah, you can order it on Amazon. You can order it through Powerhouse. And where do people find you, your work online and what you're up to? They can find me on Instagram at the initial L and my last name, Grinker, G-R-I-N-K-E-R. And my website is Lori Grinker. Twitter is also L Grinker, although I'm not very good at Twitter. I, it's a specific skill. It's not that I'm bad at it. It's just that, you know, at the time it was it's like Twitter. one more thing to add. Yeah, it's Twitter. I mean, that's all you have to say. It's, <laughs> it's just Twitter. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, I've never had, you know, I don't, I've never had enough time around you to ever do an interview like this. So it was pretty, pretty nice when Amy said we were maybe going to be able to hook up deep in the woods of Maine, I figured, great, she has nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, and I can, uh, I'll bring my kit, and we'll do this interview. So I really appreciate you doing this, and um, best of luck with the book launch, and I have a sinking suspicion it's going to do very well. Well, thank you very much. This was fun, and if people have questions, you can find me through social media. I'm sure the link will be posted. Yep, I'm going to link to everything. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Let's go eat some mussels. Absolutely. I'm, I'm about ready. I think they're waiting for us.